This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. To call the show, dial 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're going to talk about employment law. Um, You know, there's employees and employers. We're going to kind of look at it from the employer's point of view. But uh, uh, employees are part of that Part of that relationship, so we can take those too. So, if you have questions about right to work, uh, what does employment at will mean? If you have questions about performance reviews, we'll get into some of the other information, maybe about sexual harassment, and uh, what are just the the legal issues that go along with uh, in the employer employee relationship. So, good morning, Professor Gershon. How are you today? Doing great, Liz. And uh, first, I want to welcome my daughter, Michelle, to the, the studio today here in Oxford. Uh, glad to have her uh, visiting this summer. And then uh, we, we're really lucky to have Jim Simpson on the show today. Uh, he is one of the founding partners of Alan Summers uh, of, of Memphis Law Firm. Uh, he's been practicing for over 25 years. He's been recognized as a Mid-South super lawyer on many occasions. And I think this is an important topic because one of the ways that a lawyer like Jim can help employers and employees is to try to make sure that employers understand their role in the in the workplace and and how to stay out of trouble in terms <laughs> of uh, you know getting in trouble with employees. I know here at the university, uh, you know, if you talk to people who if there is litigation uh, here, a lot of times it is because someone didn't follow our own rules as an employer and so we we try to be very careful to to make sure we understand what our rules are so it's great to have jim here today thank you very much Jim, we, we're happy that you're part of the show. And I guess as a Memphis and an Oxford lawyer, you have to be well-versed in all your surrounding states. That, that's, that's correct, Liz. Um, a lot of the laws that we're going to talk about today uh, center around federal statutes, which are um, uniform throughout the states and take supremacy over the various state laws. Um, you know, I practice in Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi. I'm also licensed licensed in New York, although I don't have any active cases up there right now. But um, uh, the, the federal employment laws that we're going to talk about today, in large part, are fairly uniform throughout the country. 
what what would be an example of well what are some examples of the state laws that deal with employment well they vary from state to state right and i guess if i was going to sum it up for you in a nutshell the state of mississippi has very few employment laws the state of california and the state of new york have very very many employment laws um, for example, Mississippi doesn't have a Human Rights Act, which would be a state version of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits all different kinds of discrimination. Um, Tennessee has such an act. Um, most of the states throughout the country have a state act, uh, but Mississippi does not. Um, in order to be covered under Title VII, the federal law, uh, you have to have 15 employees or more. Um, many of the state laws throughout the country have a lower threshold number of employees that uh, would be applicable in order for the for the uh, anti-discrimination laws to kick in place in in those states. So, uh, in Mississippi, for title in Mississippi, um, there is no corresponding Human Rights Act. All right. Well, we we. Do have listeners in Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Louisiana? So this will we, but it is broadcast all over Mississippi. So we'll uh, assume it's a Mississippi law unless uh, specified otherwise. Is that our going to be our agreement, guys? That would be fine. Fantastic. So let's let's dig into Mississippi. Um, what does it mean that Mississippi is a right to work state? All right. Well, that's a that's a phrase that you hear thrown around a lot. And I think people will be somewhat surprised to know what it really means. Um, there are 28 right to work states throughout the country. And what a right to work state is. Um, in the event that a employer votes in a union at its particular employment site, then in a right-to-work state, the, in, the employer and the union cannot have a contract, a collective bargaining agreement, that makes union membership a condition of an employee being employed with that employer. Now, you can understand why that would be important because in the event of a union election and an organizing effort and a union being voted in at a particular employer in Mississippi, there is no guarantee that all of the employees who become members of the union by virtue of that majority vote are ever going to become dues-paying members of the union. So that puts Mississippi in a position, among many other states, where unions don't have a huge incentive to try to organize because there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to get everybody who becomes a member um, to actually pay dues. Now, the union will still be responsible for providing representation for all those employees. So you end up with what, you know, 
can be known as free riders, people who are entitled to the union's benefits, but don't share in any of the responsibilities for paying for all the costs affiliated with it. Now, in some states, um, if you vote in a union, you have to join the union or at least maintain uh, an obligation to pay the core membership um, responsibilities for the union um, as a condition of employment. But Mississippi is not one of those states. So that's what right to work uh, means. So, you know, the union nationwide, the the climate for union organizing is is not nearly what it has been in the past. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons behind that, um, many of which are affiliated with the fact that when unions became um, popular in a rapidly industrializing United States, um, there weren't nearly as many laws to protect worker rights. And really, organization was one of the first ways in which the employment relationship could, could be equalized, where there would be more um, equality in bargaining between employees and employers. And through that collective bargaining process, um, employees' rights were protected. And over the years, as more and more laws that uh, provide protections for employees were developed, um, the, the need, the overwhelming need for collective bargaining probably hasn't been as great as it was um, during the Industrial Revolution and thereafter. So right now, nationwide, union membership is at about 11 percent, and in Mississippi, it's somewhere between 5 and 8 percent. And that includes public employment unions as well, uh, where there's a, lot more, uh, there's a lot more unionization in the public sector than there is in the private sector these days. So I have uh, two questions. One, um, you know, a little bit of knowledge. You hear something on NPR, but so in Mississippi, uh, have, hasn't the, the United States been talking about um, uh, if someone's covered under a union, then they have to pay dues or they shouldn't have to pay dues? But regardless of this national conversation in Mississippi, if there is a union at your employ, place of employment, you if you're not a member, you don't have to pay in. Can you straighten out that idea in my head? Well, it would depend on what your contract says, for one thing. But you would not have to pay all of the dues affiliated with being a full member of a union as a condition of employment in the state of Mississippi. In other words, the employer couldn't be forced by the union to terminate your employment if you didn't provide full dues-paying membership as, a, as an employee. And I think maybe what Liz is talking about is there was a case from another state where a public employee didn't want to have to pay his mandatory dues uh, to be part of the union that he was required to belong to. And he wanted to be a free rider. And he said, well, that's I have you know rights not to join. And so I think that was the case that uh, got some some national attention. Uh, you know, and it really does. It brings to, to, to mind, I mean, the question of. You know, uh, you got some people paying for these benefits and other people receiving these benefits without paying. Um, you know, so how, you know, it's hard to sustain that. It really is. It, well, that's uh, and, and it, it, it all depends upon which state you live in right. as well. 
Um, and, and in the public sector, you know, you have different, different enabling legislation that applies. For example, the National Labor Relations Act, which governs um, labor relations in the private sector, doesn't even apply to public, ex public sector employment. So um, you're, you're dealing with uh, state-specific laws uh, under those circumstances. All right, and then one last question from me before we take our break. Listeners, remember, you can give us a call. Our number is 1-877-672-7464. Our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Uh, Y'all are up in the, the Memphis, Oxford area. I'm down here in Jackson. Uh, I've, last year, the Nissan plant, uh, they decided not to unionize. So with that vote, if they had decided to unionize, then all of the employees wouldn't be required to have joined the union. Is that That's correct? That, that's correct. They would not have had to join and become full union members. Okay. Correct. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and take our first break of the hour. Folks, don't wait till the end of the show to call in because then we run up against time. So if you're thinking about a question, go ahead and give us a call now. Our email is, our email is legalterms at mpbonline.org. And our phone number is one 877 MPB ring that turns out to be 1-877-672-7464. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Another employment-related show in legal terms produced was LGBT Issues in the Workplace from May 9, 2017. You can listen to that show on our website, mpbonline.org slash inlegalterms, or download it as a podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, we realize that not everybody has a chance to listen to our whole show live. So if you miss any of our program or you want to go back and listen to the whole show again, you can go to our website, mpbonline.org slash terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as that's also where you can find all of our local shows. I'm Liz Gill with uh, Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is attorney uh, Jim Simpson. He practices in Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi. And we're specifically talking about uh, employment law and kind of looking at things from the employer's point of view. So if you've got a question, uh, give us a call. Our number is one 877 MPB ring that works out to be one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So uh, let's go back to a little bit more about um, 
the uh, the unions. So uh, in Mississippi, uh, what are I, I know a lot of the reasons employees perf- like unions. Uh, and I guess the the opposite of that is why employers are, are against them. But why don't you tell me some of those specifics, uh, Jim? Well, in, in general, employers are not favorable to having a union come into their workplace because, number one, it's a third party. Um, and that third party then speaks for all of the employees collectively. And the employer is required in in a private employment setting to collectively bargain with the union concerning all terms and conditions of employment. Um, Economically, uh, from an administrative standpoint, it can be more costly for an employer if there is a union involved. And in some workplaces, it can be adversarial, more or less an us versus them mentality. Now, the, the general and, and here's here's uh, here's one of the reasons, uh, another reason that employers would generally not be favorable um, to union to to a union organizing their workplace. Mississippi is an employment at will state as are most states. And what that means is that an employee can leave employment at any time for any reason. And an employer can terminate an employee for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. And that changes in the context of a union contract um, because virtually every uh, contract, collective bargaining agreement between a union uh, and an employer will have what we would call a uh, just cause um, provision regarding a variety of things, discipline, termination. And it takes, aw- it takes away a lot of the employer's unfettered discretion. Um, and it, it puts an employer in a position um, where they have to justify employment decisions that they make, especially decisions that relate to actually terminating an employee's employment. All right. Well, we've got a call uh, holding for us from Jackson. Scott's on the line. Scott, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Thank you. I have a question. Uh, When an employee is not an actual member of the union and an employer, uh, aren't their rights limited as far as the union protection? The union does represent them so far on a case, but if the case cannot be settled at the first step or uh, it's got several steps of appeal, the union itself goes to also appeals with the non-paying member? The, the union, I'm going to try to answer that one. The, if I understand the question is for, for a non-union member in a union workplace, is the union obligated to provide representation to that employee? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, the union bears the responsibility for providing representation of that employee under its duty of fair representation in the private employment context, regardless of whether that employee is an actual dues-paying member. 
Scott, did that? Okay. Was yeah, that your answer? Wondered, yeah, and I want to know, like, okay, let's say there's several steps, several, maybe the, of course, I guess that's you and me, but the uh, employer, who, let's I guess we're going this one, so we're going this one. And now, supervisor issued this one, may not be able to resolve it, but the union says, no, I'm not going to resolve it. No, I'm just set in stone. Then there's another step to go through, and another step to try to get it resolved. Is the union required to go through all the steps for a non-paying member also? Yes, and, and what you're probably talking about is what, what is known in a lot of union contracts, collective bargaining agreements, as a grievance and arbitration provision. And it, it, it has a series of steps where, uh, you know, the, uh, the employee would file a grievance and then there would be a meeting to try to adjust the grievance. And then there might be a follow-up meeting to try to adjust the grievance and reach a resolution. And ultimately, if the grievance cannot be resolved to the satisfaction of the union and the employer, then um, or the employee and the employer, then most collective bargaining agreements would have a, a, a provision whereby the employee and the union would have a right to go to arbitration and have an arbitration make a decision as to whether the employer acted um, within the four corners of the collective bargaining agreement. Now, there are some instances where the union and the employer um, come to the same conclusion that the employee's grievance does not have merit and the union and the employer agree that the employee is not entitled to the relief that they're seeking under the contract and the employee is is basically bound by that decision unless in making that decision, the union breached its duty of fairly representing that employee. And in such a situation, then the employee may have some type of recourse against the union for not following through with its obligations under the law. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Scott, for calling in. We have another call um, from Brandon. Dave, welcome to In Legal Terms. What's your question or comment? Uh, my question is... When can an employer or a company restrict what a former employee or subcontractor does for work after being terminated or a project ends? That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. And it's going to depend upon the facts and circumstances of that situation. So... If I understand kind of what the question is, what if you have an employee who is left and is now doing something that is damaging to the prior employer, what can the employer do to try to put a stop to that? Well, if you have a contract in place with that employee that provides for some type of post-employment restrictions, such as a covenant not to compete, or a non-solicitation agreement that prohibits that former employee from engaging in conduct that would be damaging to the prior employer, then there may be contract rights that you could enforce in either a state court or a federal court to try to protect the employer's interest. In addition, um, recently, 
the uh, Defend Trade Secrets Act was passed by Congress, and that applies. It's a federal law that basically protects a um, employer's trade secrets. So if the situation you're talking about or envisioning has to do with uh, a former employee having absconded with his prior employer's trade secrets, such as confidential information, information that's not publicly available or generally known, or has stolen a customer list and is using that customer list to engage in unfair competition, and that customer list is in fact a trade secret, then there may be some independent basis for bringing a legal claim to try to protect those trade secrets. But it it depends on what the situation is. You know, generally, absent any type of a uh, trade secret violation, confidentiality agreement, um, covenant not to compete, non-solicitation agreement, once that employment ends and that employee leaves, he's an employee at will to go work wherever his will takes him. And as long as he doesn't independently violate some other contract or some other law, then he's, he's, a, he's a, a, a person who's free in the marketplace to go get a job. Okay. Let me ask it just a little bit further then. Let's say that Company A hires Company B, and Company A and B have an agreement that says – Company A will not try to hire away either employees or subcontractors of Company B. Company B has an employee or subcontractor who have they have no written contract with. Whatever happens, there's a fallout, and Company A approaches that employee or subcontractor to finish the job after Company B has been fired. What does the employee have for rights at that point? The employee, the employee's rights, or the employer's rights? Well, I'd really like to know both. Well, let me tell you what the first step is going to be. The first step is going to be take a look at what the contract says between Company A and Company B, because that's going to determine what the rights are between those two parties. And the rights of those two parties may also impact what the employee who has been employed by Company A and Company B under different scenarios, what what that employee's rights may or may not be by virtue of what the contract between Company A and Company B says. Okay. Is there a difference if the party is not an employee but a subcontractor of Company B? It, it, it depends. You could, have a, you could have a contract between Company A and Company B that says – you can't hire our contractors for some certain period of time, and, and, and we have a protectable interest in those contractors that we utilize, and um, we're providing that information. You, you know, we're, we're providing these contractors on a, on a confidential basis to you. Um, as long as they have a protectable interest that would protect um, that relationship between the first company and the independent contractors that they've utilized, then 
it may be able to be enforced. Typically, it's more difficult to enforce a competition restriction or non-solicitation agreement between a company and a contractor than it is between a company and an employee because a, a contractor usually has has to have some form of independence um, in order to be a contractor. Mm-hmm. Absent that independence, that contractor may be an employee. See, you could you can call yourself a contractor, but under the law, the court could say you're actually an employee. And that happens all the time. And mm-hmm. lots of employers get into big trouble by doing what we call misclassification of of employees as contractors because certain employment laws don't apply if 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 there is a bona fide contractor relationship as opposed to there being an employment relationship and the courts will look through what the what the name of the relationship is or what the contract says and and make a determination based upon the facts and circumstances as to whether somebody is actually a contractor or an employee and it's basically a control test and if if the contractor controls their own work and sets their own hours, determines the methods of work, and basically all and and basically the 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 employer doesn't have control over how the contractor achieves those objectives, then there's a good chance that that worker is actually a a contractor rather than employee. And wouldn't it be fair to say that if employers had the choice, they treat every employee as a contractor because they wouldn't have to pay their Social Security. They wouldn't have, There are a lot of things that uh, rights you gain by being an employee as opposed to an independent contractor. Absolutely. Sure. And, that, and, that, and that's kind of what brings it up because I see that happening more and more uh, where people are doing exactly that. And, and that's kind of what bred the question. I'll tell you where it happens a lot. Um, Employers will use that as a tool to try to get away, to try to get around paying overtime. They'll characterize uh, workers as as independent contractors when, in fact, they are not. And there is a lot of litigation uh, under the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, involving misclassification of workers. Right. Okay. Well, I appreciate the answer to the question. I think it's uh, pretty clear in my head. All right, Dave, we appreciate you calling in. Uh, We're going to take our second break now. Uh, We're talking about uh, employment law. Um, This is very fascinating. Uh, Independent contractors versus contract employees at will unions. Uh, If you have a question, we'd love to take it. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Gershon is our expert at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and we're joined by our guest, Jim Simpson, uh, attorney in the uh, Memphis and Oxford areas. And this morning we're talking about employment law. Uh, So, Professor Gershon, all of these legal Uh, specialities just kind of all get meshed together. So uh, there's lots of contract work in employment law also. Is that right? Well, you know, I've always said contracts are just they're, they're sets of instructions just like wills. And so, I mean, I think one of the most important things for people to understand, if you, you know, the, the previous caller, really important to understand what the contract actually says, as Jim pointed out, uh, and to work those details out when you enter into an agreement with someone, whether it's employment or a contract situation. Uh, we had David Mockby on a couple of weeks ago to talk about construction law. Same thing. Communication, understanding what the instructions are really will, uh, I think, save a lot of problems. All right. Well, we have a call waiting for us from uh, Van Cleve Bryan. Thanks for calling in legal terms today. What's your question or comment? Well, my question is uh, uh, my wife is uh, a social worker here, and and, uh, she's uh, they're, they're starting a new program and they want her to be part of the program. Uh, kind of directing it, and uh, she requested a small pay raise, and, and and it's been going on for about a month now, and she has not heard anything, and everybody keeps talking about this program that is starting, 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 and she cannot get a straight answer from anybody, not even human resources, uh, and I, she's worried that they're going to slide her into this director position and keep her at the same pay. And they really don't pay a whole lot anyway. So that is my question. Uh, what what can she do and, and to get her answers? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And it, it goes back to something we talked about a little earlier in the show. Uh, if she doesn't have a contract and... Um, the employer that she's working for um, is is offering her this basically an elevated position, but has been um, uh, less than forthright about what the what the intention is in terms of whether she's going to get a pay. Your wife should probably tread pretty carefully because she's she's an employment. She, she is a victim of the employment at will doctrine. Okay, so what that means, again, is if they offer her this position and she doesn't want to take it at that pay, it's up to her not to take not to take that position. Now, that may mean that they decide that they don't want to give her that position. It may mean that they have questions about whether they want to keep her in her incumbent position. Um, She's without a contract. She's kind of unprotected. So I guess my advice would be to ask nicely to see if you can, you know, get the details worked out on the front end. But I wouldn't become adversarial with the employer because she doesn't have a very strong bargaining position unless 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 she is willing to exercise her 
right to leave. And, you know, that's what she has. It depends on how valuable she is to the organization. If she's extremely valuable, then she may have a great deal of bargaining power. But she's she's the one who's going to be in a position to to analyze and make a determination on that. Now, you know, know, pay. She's thought a lot about it and she's she's all for it. But uh, it it just seems a little odd that uh, they've had people that have hired in under her uh, recent graduates that are masters. They happen to be male who make almost eight thousand more dollars a year than her. So right. she's she's a little upset about that as well. And I know they're not supposed to talk about that stuff amongst work themselves, but uh, but people talk. Well, let me let me explain something to you just just about that real quickly. Um, you know, we talked a little bit in passing about the National Labor Relations Act, and it, it's the it's the it's the law, the federal law that determines the relationships between unions and employers. But it also does provide certain protections for employees who engage in what's called concerted protected activity. Okay, now mm-hmm. cons- concerted means more than one person. Okay, protected means it's something that has to do with her terms and conditions of employment. And let me give you an example. Maybe you can read between the lines here. If if your wife were to go to her employer and say, I don't think it's fair that you're not paying us commensurate with what you're paying less qualified males. Um, um, she may have some basis if they were to take action, if, if what she's complaining about is discrimination and they were to terminate her uh, in retaliation for that. But, but let's say she complained, I don't think it's fair that I'm paid what I am paid. Okay? That's protected activity, but it's not concerted. If she, right. if she were to go to her employer and say, Jane and Susie and Mac and I all feel the same, that it's not fair the way we're getting paid, okay? That would be concerted, protected activity. And if her employer were to take action against her for complaining about her wages, she would have some basis under the law to challenge that by filing a charge with the National Labor Relations Board. That would be what what you would call a Section 8A3 violation because she would have engaged in concerted protected activity because it would deal with her and other employees and their terms and conditions of employment. Well, I greatly appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Brian, we appreciate you calling in. Listeners, if you would like to call in, go ahead. Our number is 1-877-672-7464. Jim, we've talked a little bit about the employment at will. Give us, uh, you you mentioned the National Labor Relations Act, but what are some uh, laws and rules or exceptions to the employment at will rule? Well, first of all, one of the one of the biggest would be all of the anti-discrimination laws, and that that would be all of the 
uh, protected categories under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, sex, race, religion, et cetera, sexual orientation now. That you um, said in Mississippi only applies to employers that have over 15 employees. That's that right? correct. Okay. And that's a federal law. Yes. That's a federal law. That's the law throughout the United States. Uh, family and medical leave is an exception to employment uh, at will. Um, obviously, a contract. If you have a contract with your employer, whether it's a union contract or not, that's an exception because that would define your terms and conditions of employment. Uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, there's a variety of uh, a variety of laws that provide employment at will. Uh, exceptions. Um, sometimes uh, if, if you complain about illegal activities um, taking place at your, at your workplace, that could be uh, what, what, what would be known as a public policy exception to employment at will. And there's laws that, that provide protection for that, such as the False Claims Act. Um, or Sarbanes-Oxley has, has anti-retaliation provisions. Um, so uh, there's there's lots of exceptions, lots of exceptions. You know, as a as an em employment lawyer who represents um, who has represented employers many many times over the years, you know, a lot of times, you know, you get the question from the employer bef before the employment decision has been made. Um, you know, our last caller talked about the human resource department. Um, a little bit. And, you know, the, the Human Resource Department is kind of the place at a lot of em employers where uh, the decisions get made as to whether an employee's employment is going to be terminated or whether their benefits are going to change. And, you know, typically, if you remember the, the, the TV show, The Office, everybody hated human resources. <laughs> they, they, Toby Flenderson was the human resource manager, and nobody liked human resources because when the employees get called to human resources, it's usually not good news. And it's the human resource department that typically has relationships with the employment lawyers and, you know, the, the, the questions that the employment lawyers get center around, you know, here's the situation, here's what's going on. Can I take this challenged action against, against the employee? And, you know, the answer depends on, well, what what has happened in this case? What have you done in the past uh, in, in, similar, in similar situations? And d are, are we treating this person fairly? You know, that's kind of the question that, that you need to ask before you, as a, as a company, before you take, to, before you take action against, against an employee. Now, what, what you see happen a lot is um, you, have, you have a situation where an employer may want to take take action against an employee because of what we call uh, performance issues. They're not doing a good job. Well, as an employment lawyer, the first thing you ask is, well, what have their evaluations been like? Okay? Um, and, you know, a lot of times the, the answer is, oh, well, they've had a satisfactory employment evaluation for years. Okay, so what changed? I mean, why wasn't the employee given notice of these supposed performance deficiencies? And the very first thing that's going to come up in litigation of an employment dispute is going to be, what's in the personnel file? What's the documentation? 
What does it look like? And that's why it's so important to do honest performance evaluations as an employer. Because if, if and, and look, it's laziness by the employer, by the management, by the supervisors. It's a lot easier to give everybody a satisfactory rating than to sit down and critique people about what their strong points are and what their weak points are Well, great, and, and, we'll, and how we'll, they should do better. We'll get uh, more into the uh, employment uh, ratings and, and things like that, when, but we've got to take our third break. So this is your last chance to call in. Douglas, hold on. Uh, we'll get you when we come back from the break. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Our phone number is one 877 672-7464. I've also got our email open, so if you can't get to the phone, you can send us an email. And if you need to send us an email later, we can forward it on to our experts to get an answer for you. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. So remember, if you miss any of our program, listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms or you can listen on the mpb media app uh, or you could download it as a podcast or subscribe to our podcast and that's on different podcast platforms Uh, i use podcast addict some people use stitch some people might get things from itunes so whatever whatever uh podcasting uh, software you like, you can try to find us there. I'm Liz Gill. uh, Professor Richard Gershon and I have our guest, uh, Jim Simpson. We're talking about employment law. We've just got a few minutes, but we do want to take this call from Douglas uh, in Calhoun County. Uh, Go ahead with your question, Douglas. Good. Good morning. I have have always wondered about the difference between tenure and unionizing. Could you answer that one for me? Okay. Um, Tenure is one of those terms that can have multiple meanings. Um, Generally, it could could just refer to how long a period you've been in employment. In the... uh, uh, Professor Gershon can answer this better than I can answer, but in in the academic uh, 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 circumstance, it it relates to um, a a level of employment that, for example, a professor may have with a university. That once that level is reached, that professor would be entitled to significantly more. Uh, job protection, um, 
freedom, um, a, an elevated status than would a person who, uh, un, under those same circumstances, is non-tenured. And, and it, it, it almost elevates your it, 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 to, to kind of draw a, a similarity between the union context and the uh, academic context. Um, both of those statuses whether you're an employee under a collective bargaining agreement or whether you're a uh, professor who is tenured with a university, um, a big similarity would be the employer couldn't take action against you, um, for example, to terminate your employment without having what we would call just cause or a good reason for doing that. It is, uh, it is it, both of those circumstances would be what we would call an exception to the general status of employment at will. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Jim. And I think one thing that people don't understand is that tenured faculty members can be fired. In fact, as a dean one time, yeah. unfortunately, I had to fire a tenured faculty member. Uh, tenured faculty members still have to do their job. They have to teach. They have to write. They have to do service. Uh, we do have a post-tenure review process. Most universities do. So I think there's kind of this misconception that one, you know, you just people just sleep in their offices for the rest of their <laughs> lives. Uh, but that really is not the case. All right. Thank you, Douglas. Uh, this is going to wind up our show. What's the last thing? What can you leave us with, uh, uh, Attorney Jim Simpson, about uh, employment law? Um, I, I guess I guess the last thing I would I would bring up is um, arbitration. This is a hot button issue. And this is an issue that uh, everyone should be concerned about. There is a growing uh, acceptance by the federal courts throughout this country to uphold the enforceability of arbitration clauses. Um, they did that, you know, as recently as last month in a in a five four Supreme Court decision in Epic Systems, where if the parties sign. Uh, an employment, uh, uh, an arbitration agreement where their disputes are going to be deci decided by arbitration, the courts are going to enforce those agreements. And that is significant. It takes away an employee's right to a jury. It takes, a, it takes away a right to have a collective action or a class action against an employer. Um, it, it can make it more expensive in some circumstances to have your, your dispute, your dispute uh, resolved. It's great news for employers. It's very good news for employers because, and, and you, you have to keep in mind. Um, well, Jim, we'll, we'll have to keep it in mind another time because we have good. 20 seconds. Thank you, Jim Simpson, for being on our show. Uh, this has been in legal terms. Our call screener today has been Kobe Vance. Our board engineer in Jackson has been Jay White. In Oxford, Paul Bennett, thank you so much for helping us out. So for Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Thanks. Thanks for listening to MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.